This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today, my guest is the lead singer of the band System of a Down, Serge Tonkian. The band is a mix of punk, metal, and Armenian folk music, and in 2006, they won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance of their song, BYOB, Bring Your Own Bombs. The new film, Truth to Power, follows Serge and System of a Down from their formation, their fight for social justice for Armenians, and how they developed their unique sound. This interview was recorded at the beginning of February. Serge, I'm so excited to talk to you about this film, but let's just start with some of the basics. So just uh, for a general overview, tell me about Truth to Power. Sure. Um, So originally the idea started as a POV film. Um, uh, In 2011, I knew I was going to have the most uh, kind of exciting professional year with different projects and different bands to perform with and, you know, System of a Down, orchestras and my backup band, the FCC, and working on three different types of records, three different genres. I thought, wow, I should record this year. So I strapped cameras onto my head uh, at different times, uh, even like uh, (laughs) like little spy glasses at points and, and, you know, HD cameras and whatever, and just shot everything that I did. So the idea was to make a POV film. Once I started really looking at the footage, I realized that I'm going to make people throw up because I'm not a good, I'm more like a bird. My head turns too often. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really perfect for POV type of stuff. And, but I, but the idea of, of having this experiential film seen through the eyes of an artist still, still stuck with me. And what I was interested in more than showing the the backstage idea of an artist or from the eyes of an artist was really wanting to showcase an activist journey. And so he really kind of took the helms at that point and it became a different film altogether. And we have used some of my POV stuff for fun kind of fillers, if you will, stories of touring or whatever. But the majority of the story became this kind of passionate artist journey from a point where an artist has an active, sorry, an activist journey from a point where the activist has very little voice at the beginning of his artistic career. And then later it becomes more pronounced and the effects of that and the far reaching effects of that, both positive and negative, the repercussions of being an artist and an activist, etc. It became truth to power. I think I'm really fascinated, though, is the, the that through line and how kind of the um, the growth of the band is interwoven, especially with the history of Armenia, the Armenian genocide. And when you see the activism, uh, especially going through some of the old footage of the band, the activism that your band was doing starting out versus where it's grown to now, what's your reaction to that? You know, it's been incredible. Most activists don't have the privilege of seeing the work that they do, the effect of the work that they do. It's hard to gauge the effect of an activist's work, right? But, you know, seeing the 
Congress of the United States in December 2019 formally recognized the Armenian genocide after many, many years of hard work of awareness on the part of the band, along with the you know Armenian-American community at large, really was like this incredible kind of feeling of, wow, that we had some type of effect. We, we felt the effect of our activism as artists. And that's really unique and beautiful. We get, I, you know, I used to get a lot of letters, still do, emails, um, you know, sent to the office or whatever saying, you know, I didn't know about the Armenian genocide. I learned about it through the band. And now I'm doing my book report in high school about it or my essay, uh, you know, in, in, in university or whatever. Uh, there are people that have taught their teachers about it and their teachers had to actually go and do their own research and come back and go, okay, now I know what's going on. So, I mean, it's huge, you know, and, and that's one example, you know, there's, there's many other platforms that, that as activists I've undertaken and the band even has undertaken, but to me that, that is one of the most obvious ones. Um, so it's really a privilege, honestly. Well, and, and I think you mentioned this in the film that, and if I say this wrong, please correct me, that it was your grandfather who, I don't think he used the word activist, but he wanted you to speak up for the voice of Armenia through your art. And was that kind of the spark for you? Because I don't feel like people, uh, there are maybe some people who say, I want to be an activist, and they are an activist. Most people just fight for what they believe in. And I guess I'm wondering, where did that spark come from for, come from for you? I, you know, for me, the I became an activist because I was an Armenian in the U.S. and the government, and, and even though, you know, four of my grandparents were survivors of the genocide with horrific stories of how their families perished, not, nonetheless, the government of the United States never officially recognized the genocide. And to me, that made me feel like, wait a minute, if I'm in a well-known democracy, denying a truth, uh, historical truth for political expediency or economic reasons with a NATO ally, Turkey, then how many other truths are there out there that are being denied for, you know, similar kind of nef nefarious reasons, be they economic or political? And that made me an activist. It's a great way of putting it. And then I, I want to talk about the music, too, because I feel you have so many different um, outlets uh, artistically. You, you're a singer, a poet, songwriter, an artist, an activist, um, a composer. But early in the film, you mentioned that you were writing poetry before you wrote songs. How did you know when a line you wrote would make a good lyric versus a good line in a poem or a poem you wrote would be a good song or just uh, a good poem? I mean, I, I wrote a lot of uh, poetry just because I had the habit of writing every day um, and earlier on. And as I was playing music um, and, and, and I wasn't as proficient as, 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 I was more proficient with words than music when I first started out. Uh, and over time, I start. I played more and more music. Now I'm actually more focused on composing than I am on, you know, lyrical writing or poetry. I don't write, unfortunately, as much as I would like to or, or should, um, as far as be they poems or, or journals or anything in terms of thoughts and feelings. It's just the way it is. I've, my art has gone into multiple directions, and and I'm more prolific musically, I guess. Um, but yeah, at at the time, I was way more. A, a word man than a bird man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, and I wonder too, because I, um, when you, when like System of a Down writes a song, what happens first? Is it the lyrics or is it the music or a combination of both? Like, how does that work? Over time, that changed. Originally, uh, Darren would bring in music um, because, again, um, I wouldn't bring in as much music earlier on because I was mostly 
the word man. Um, and I would bring in the lyrics over time. I think we both kind of enriched the other aspects that we lacked. So I started doing more music and he started doing more lyrics as well. So that kind of gets into the uh, discography of System of a Down as you go on further into the later records. And so that that changes. And, you know, mostly he would bring in a song uh, and in the later days, like, uh, um, let's say, hypnotize, mesmerize, and he would have lyrical content or at least partial lyrical content or at least a lyrical idea for a song. Um, and, And I was doing the same thing. If I brought in a song, I would have I would usually have full lyrics and full music and maybe make some arrangement changes based on uh, likes and dislikes of the band members and how they want to play their th- to the song and, and whatnot or add a part to it, etc. So, you know, we were never the type of band that jammed a tune out and created stuff in the studio together. Uh, maybe a few songs, but from a repertoire of five, six records, uh, a few songs is not much, you know. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is uh, you and Rick Rubin talking about the first time he saw System of a Down perform. And um, what was that working relationship like on toxicity? Um, Rick is an incredible uh, human being, first and for- foremost, and, and, and an amazing friend. And he has this way of making artists feel incredibly comfortable so that they can do their best um, without anyone forcing them to. And, and he does that just organically because he is truly a fan of music. And when he likes a certain band or a certain sound, certain artist, he really becomes the uber fan of that music and, and, and really gets into the nitty gritty of it and, and understands and kind of really gets it, you know, and that helps with the vision of what you're trying to create as an artist. So, uh, you know, Rick has produced pretty much all of Systems records, you know, he's uh influenced the way that I produce my own music and and hear things like I still hear him when I sing when I do vocals most of my music now is instrumental for films or whatever but when I'm doing vocals I still hear him in my head going pronounce it better pronounce it better (laughs) you know it, it truly is like you learn a lot you know and and he's really a very spiritual dude too he's like uh taught me a lot about being in the moment when you're writing and and also if something's not coming to you kind of open the door so that other influences can help uh the muse can come sooner and and you know trial and error and all sorts of stuff no it's 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 a beautiful relationship he's been an incredible producer ally label head for system of a down's journey and, and another big part uh especially we see in the film um truth to power is how touring shaped the band. And I got a few questions about this. One, just because we are kind of still in the midst of a pandemic, how has that affected the fact of the fact you're not performing? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, there is no performance happening except for in New Zealand. Um, We were actually in New Zealand for nine months. We lived there part of the year. But yeah, worldwide, that's been, you know, uh, off. Um, Personally, it it hasn't affected, you know, I've I had a lot. I had a whole tour. We had 22 shows with System planned last year that got canceled, and it looks like there's not going to be much this year happening either. Um, I had two film premieres, including Truth to Power, that was going to premiere at Tribeca last year with a full orchestra, and we had a performance planned that went under. Uh, I had art uh, exhibits planned that went under. So a lot of 
events events didn't happen but honestly it is what it is right you know you know as an artist you just go okay well that's not happening so what do i do now and so i created a lot of new music as 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 a result and you know over time i think you know touring is 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 less of what i like to do anyway you know i i enjoy being on stage i just don't enjoy all that travel that really kind of wears wears you out um and uh and i've done it for 25 years so uh it's not as creative as i'd like to be you know um so it didn't really the touring aspect of it didn't really make me not touring didn't make me sad in any any bit not seeing these two films premiere last year did <laughs> so I, I do want to talk about your orchestral music, but I, I want to ask one more thing with the tour because uh, I think something that really attracts people to System of Down is your vocal performance uh, and, and, and the way you phrase your lyrics. And I'm wondering, just because when you're on tour, how do you keep your, 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 your voice from going? How do you keep healthy to be able to, to perform songs like that? I think the challenge is staying healthy. That's the word that you just mentioned um, because... You know, if I'm if I'm healthy, then, you know, your voice is healthy. You're you know, you're OK. And the challenges of the musical acrobatics, the vocal acrobatics are just something that I've learned to do. And it's it's breath techniques. It's uh, some tricks um, of, of, of voice. It's 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 a combination of everything. But it's a lot of intention and strong kind of melting out uh, is no, no other way of saying it. Uh, singing beautifully and just kind of, you know, really knowing your voice and exercising, you know, I have to get my voice in shape before a tour like an athlete. I can't just go from, you know, I'm not, I'm not singing Sinatra songs. I wish I was in some cases, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to literally spend two weeks to a month, um, continually singing these hard, fast songs over and over again until my voice gets back into shape to be able to do a tour. And then the body as well has to be you know, you have to work out and be in shape and all of that stuff. And then on tour, something can throw you off. You might get sick, lose your voice. You might, you know, hurt your back or, you know, whatever. Those things happen. And uh, and, and you got to just deal with those challenges and get around them. And they teach you things as well. You know, I've I've had shows where my voice was I was sick. I had fever. And but you do the show and you get through it. And, you know, people love it anyway. <laughs> and they're like, have you ever heard the phrase "doctor show business"? Um, I used to, years ago I did theater, and, and um, sometimes people would say if you came in sick, that doctor show business would give you a shot. It's usually adrenaline, yeah. and you actually perform really well, but then you just hurt and crash right after. Totally, totally. Yeah, no, I haven't had those shots, um, but I have had metaphorical oxygen. shots, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I have had oxygen, and in places that were, you know. Um, high elevation where I was having a hard time breathing sometimes, but a couple of times, but nothing major, you know, uh, never, never took the big drugs or, you know, not, a, not, not one of those guys, not into it. Um, but, but just kind of just, you know, trying to be really up for it, you know, um, but it, it is acrobatics. It is vocal acrobatics. It's not easy, but, but it is fun. Um, okay, so there's a film in the scene I want to discuss a little bit, and it's the one around. Um, you guys, talk, you talk about the March first, two thousand eight protest in Armenia against. Um, and if I get the present, the the name of the president elected wrong, I apologize. It's Serge Sarsian. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, and then you wrote this public letter um, in response to the protest, and he wrote one in return. Were you surprised a at the effect your letter had, and? that he actually wrote you back 
Uh, yes, I was surprised um, at, you know, at both. Uh, you know, I did re- write an open letter, so press had published it. Um, you know, even during the oligarchic corrupt days of Armenia's rule before 2018, Armenia always had a very, very transparent, open press, unlike Turkey and some of our neighbors there. So our press was always kind of thriving. Armenians love to speak their minds, so we can never be, we can never have a oppressed press. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, so I guess the press had, uh, yeah, I had written a letter kind of challenging the corruption and um, ballot rigging that was happening in 2008 um, at at the victory of the then president, Ser Sarkisian. And he did write me back an open letter as well, kind of almost pater- in a very paternalistic way, saying everything will be all right, everything's cool, and, you know, using a lot of kind of my own lyrics uh, to to kind of explain things. And uh, because I wasn't satisfied with the response and I was serious and, you know, I, I basically challenged it and it we, he left it at that. And but, you know, years ago, I realized that, you know, um, a lot of Armenian diaspora and diaspora and Armenians who are working to recognize the genocide in different countries in the world who are trying to get aid to Armenia, you know, they don't want to talk about the ills of that country. And, and, and I did, because to me, justice is justice, truth is truth. So yes, I did challenge the previous regime. I was there for the 2018 a peaceful velvet revolution that changed the country's trajectory. Um, and it became a more progressive democratic nation. Um, and unfortunately, the highs of the, the, the beautiful velvet revolution didn't last long because two and a half years later, we had the attacks by Azerbaijan and Turkey using Syrian mercenaries uh, against uh, a land known as Artsakh, which is the, the, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. You know, those people that have been living on those lands for 2,500 years, their ancestral homelands, were brutalized and killed and, and using banned weaponry and, and whatnot, Fo- white phosphorus, you know, bombs and, and grad missiles and uh, smirch missiles and stuff. And, and a lot of civilian population were bombed. And, you know, so a lot of displacement, it's a human rights uh, travesty that's uh, still reeling right now, even though there's been a ceasefire and Russian peacekeeping troops have entered the area. Can't help but uh, draw comparison to a little bit to what's going on as we are doing this interview, which is um, our uh, former president, Donald Trump, is being is going through an impeachment trial. And Part of that was spurred on by his claims of, um, you know, elect, I wouldn't say election rigging, but the fact that maybe there were ballots that were falsified or miscounted or that aren't valid. What is your reaction when you look at stuff that has actually happened in places like Armenia with election rigging versus something like that's going on in the U.S. right now? It's, it's quite interesting because, in, you know, the, the whole presidency of Donald Trump was a presidency of subjectivity rather than objectivity. You know, it's a point of view rather than facts. Um, And it is the highest level of fake news during this presidency. And social media obviously is more prevalent during his presidency than previous ones, even though it was around, obviously, since Clinton. Uh, And so it's a whole different take. Um, We have seen the data. I mean, is there is there complications with voting? Are there ways of making certain people not vote and all of that. Yes, I mean, there are problems with voting. But, you know, I think the problem with U.S. voting isn't so much fraud. It's access, you know, using access as a way of turning away certain types of voters, demographically, um, minorities, etc. 
And, uh, you know, so that's what we need to be aware of. But yeah, the whole thing with the rushing of the capital, you know, that rushing of the capital happened in parliament in Armenia after the second Artsakh war a couple of months back. And it was like horrible and tragic. I found it to be, you know, really bad. And then it happened in America. And I'm like, well, I guess Armenia is not the only one, a small nation. It <laughs> just have to be a small nation in the caucus for that to happen. It could happen anywhere. And it you really caught me and a lot of people by surprise that something like that could have happened here. It's it's shocking and it's scary. I mean, looking at those videos of, uh, you know, the House of Representatives and people like crouching and, you know, and, and guns drawn and like that, that's that shouldn't be going on, man. So the name of our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. What's your current obsession? Because I score films, my my current obsession is um, software synthesizers. <laughs> uh, more like samples, like, you know, contact samples for scoring and, you know, finding perfect sounds and tones and, you know, great sounding instruments of the past or modern. And I just, I love sounds, like sounds are, are my current passion. I collect, uh, you know, uh, software sample libraries, like like collectors collect other things. <laughs> Except that I don't, I don't, you can't see my hoarding because it's on a drive, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but I use them. I use a lot of them for scoring because each film that I score is usually a different uh, tone, a different song palette. And directors usually want different things. So you end up creating and sometimes creating new sounds and, and using new sounds for different films. And and, and that so it's, it's actually very useful. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about your compositions, because um, we're talking about synthetic music or synthetic or synthesized um, orchestral stuff just now. But do you remember the first time you heard an orchestra play a piece of music you composed? Yes, that was um, in New Zealand, in Auckland. That was the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra. And it was, I want to say 2008 or 2009. And we, we actually filmed the whole thing and put out a CD DVD called Elected at Symphony. And uh, since then, I've worked with uh, at least two dozen, three dozen orchestras around the world and done live shows and uh, heard them play Orca, my symphony, Elected at Symphony, different pieces of music that I've written. And honestly, I got to say, man, you know, it's one thing I, I perform with the orchestra, but I also let them just sit back and kind of let them play some of the movements uh, of my symphony. And it is a whole different feeling to be a, a composer and 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 watch kind of your music come to life without you as a performer, because my whole life's been music as a performer, you know, like I've been on the front front and center of the music it is it is it is a really interesting feeling being in the back of it you know and i enjoy it more and more because i've done the first a lot you know so it's like you know cool yeah i released elasticity a, a rock ep that 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 is coming out in march um but i release a lot more instrumental music you know for film and for you know classical and jazz and all sorts of stuff and then uh when it comes to we talked a little bit about your your growth as an activist and uh, the growth of your art with System of Down, like how has that growth changed as a composer over the years for you? How have you grown as a composer over the years, I should say? You know, just working on different films, working with different directors, I've become 
less and less attached to music itself, uh, the, what I create, you know, um, because you're working in, in a world where someone else ultimately is the decision maker of what goes into the film, right? The director usually, or pr producer in some cases. And so you really have to kind of do your best and, and yet be detached from it if there are changes to be made. Now you try your best to get in what you think is going to be the best thing, obviously. And you can, you can fight for it. You can, you know, kind of sway things in certain directions, but I've had to be very detached. And that's taught me a lot, uh, kind of like Mandela paintings that uh, Buddhist uh, priests make and then, you know, let them go into the river, you know, because they're made of sand and it's, it's made, it's, 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 it's a certain type of growth that I think I've had composing music that, that I didn't have as a songwriter. And I want to go back to Elasticity. Where does that, where did that song come from and, and why, why have it come out now? Uh, elasticity was kind of like, um, I had a suite of songs that, that, that all came roughly in the same amount of time, about five, six years ago. And Elasticity was the last one that came. Electric Yerevan was there. I think it was the second one. I don't remember the exact orders, but they all came at roughly about the same time. And because they were, they all felt like they were rock. They had an attitude, even the mellow ones. I thought that they would kind of work for System. And for many years with System, we've tried to, you know, write, write together again. So we can, we haven't put out a record since 2006. And, uh, you know, I thought it could work, but it just, we couldn't see eye to eye in terms of the vision forward creatively and, and, and what, the, that road forward meant. So I then decided to finish the songs myself and release them as an EP. And the single, this, both the single and the name of the EP is Elasticity. You come up as an artist, specifically with System of Down in the film. But if you were starting out, let's say now, with social media, YouTube, uh, the internet being available pretty much anywhere in anyone's pocket, how do you think that would have changed you as an artist and or System of the Down as a band? Oh, it would change things a lot, man. I mean, we came up at a time where labels were still investing in, in, you know, allowing certain bands, not every band, to go out and tour and wait until having that first radio hit. We did, we toured with Slayer, we did Ozfest on our first record. Our, our first record didn't have much radio love, even though in retrospect, we did really well because albums were still selling at the time. That was 97. And, you know, it's different now completely. I mean, I don't think labels spend a lot of money uh, allowing artists to go tour before they actually make make it back using radio or, or other platforms, you know, social media, video, etc. These days, you kind of have to, I, I guess in our days, I, I should put it this way, in our days, I always say you have to be able to create a fire in your own backyard before, you know, burning the world down with the music. And, and that was for live performance. We had to play live shows and intrigue people, have a line out the door so that labels finally go, who are these guys? And, you know, why haven't we heard of them, etc.? which is how we were discovered ultimately the right way. These days, you, that fire is basically your social media. You have to have enough followers. You have to have an, enough influence out there for labels to kind of go, oh, who is this person? Why do they have so many, you know, likes or follows or whatever? And it's it's kind of it's it is quite different. I mean, the live aspect is still there, although hasn't been around in the last few years due to COVID. But I think the live aspect will always still be there. That you know, uh, a good live performance, people will always spend time and money to go see. But um, the way that bands would get signed or artists will be discovered has really really changed drastically.
Well, I would like to wrap up our interview. We do a thing called Pick One. And the first I have for you is guitar, keyboard, or vocals. Pick one. Guitar. Um, because I... I don't know, I, because I haven't played it in, in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when I compose, I'm mostly on the keys, right? So, um, and there are there are times I use the guitar for composing, but I'm mostly on keys. Um, so, yeah, that's why. <laughs> that's a great reason. I love. I, I have to say, the other thing I love about Truth to Power is you're so um, you're so genuine and nice, and not to say that I think you're mean at all in, in your music, but there's definitely an aggressiveness in in your songs. But it's just like this really nice, down to earth guy. You're like. Yeah, I get he was just doing like uh like the the fact that you were doing like demo vocals for the first song you wrote and that's how you got into singing is I think so amazing to me. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I, I you know it's it's funny being around music and musicians for many years. I've realized guys that put out I shouldn't say guys, people that put out happy music are usually miserable and people that put out really dark <laughs> up music are usually pretty happy. <laughs> I think you're right. All right, next one. Um, Los Angeles or New Zealand? Pick one. Los Angeles? Or no, Los say- Angeles. I'm sorry oh, if I, it sounded weird. Right. One LA is a, or New the country, Patrick. Come on. It's I know. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to like, I, well, let me be fair here. I don't want to say, uh, I don't know exactly what city you live in. I don't know if you want people to know where you live in New Zealand. I but. would say New Zealand. I would say New Zealand. I've lived in Los Angeles most of my life. I have a lot of my friends, a lot of my work, family here. But New Zealand is where I feel the most at home. All right, next one is um, singer, poet, songwriter, visual artist, activist, or composer. Pick one. I love doing all of those things. Um, but, you know, including painting, you know, I'm, and mostly what I do now is painting and composing, you know, as a visual artist. or, or But there's something about composing that I still feel like I need to master more that I still need to kind of uh, get into more, um, get more films to score, get get more diverse things to work on. And and it gives me the most wide array, kind of the most wide palette of doing stuff. Each film is a completely different sound. Um, so that's kind of why. Yeah. I want to thank Serge for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. To find out where to watch Truth to Power, go to the site truthtopower.oscilloscope.net. Also, please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next time, take care.